But the message, I hope, of the work itself is that children are precious. which is kind of gets back to that the Thomas Merton quote that we're all like these little pieces of divinity. Like if I could just nail that every single picture that we're like these precious things, like that we're missing the point kind of. So I wanted to have this universal appeal. Like I want a Trump supporter, a gun-owning Trump supporter, to look at those pictures and be like, wow, you know, I waited for the bus, or I waited with my kids at the bus. Like, I want it to resonate with everybody, because we need everybody. This is a problem that affects all of us. Even gun owners, even hunters, even people that grew up hunting with their grandfathers, people that are members of the NRA. I get it. But we're shooting children. That is something we could, should all agree on. Hi, I'm Greg Miller. I live in Northeastern Connecticut with my family. I have two daughters and I'm a beautiful wife and I love photographing people. Hi, my name is Michael Howard and welcome to The Photo Podcast. I've gravitated towards photographing with a, a large format camera. I would say I, I use that camera because I, I can't quit it as much as, um, you know, as much I love it, but as, as expensive as it is, I, I can't stop using it. I started photographing when I was 15 years old. And, you know, my dad was an amateur photographer. Uh, by trade, he was, a, he was a musician, a classical musician and a band director for 50 years. But on the side, he made pictures and he processed the film, which then was E6 in the basement of my grandmother's house. So I grew up with the brown bottles and all the photography stuff. I grew up with magazines. And so by the time I process my first roll of film at 15 years old, I was, it was exhilarating. I feel like I didn't really have a choice in a way. Like I, you know, and I started, I was a photographer. I photographed for the, the yearbook, my high school yearbook. I eventually became the, the editor of the yearbook. And then I met this photographer outside of high school. My parents moved to this apartment building. So I met our landlord was a photographer, a professional photographer in Nashville. And so he kind of took me under his wing and, and, and taught me a lot about photography before I even went to college. And because of all that, I got a scholarship to go to School of Visual Arts. And so I was actually, you know, to be honest with you, I, I was drawing and doing other mediums and I was sculpting. I was drawing and sculpting people. And then I eventually started, photo when I started photographing, I would photograph scenes without people or still lives, but that felt like an empty stage to me. And so I immediately started moving towards photographing people. 
So all of this occurred like before I even went to college. And and like when I went to school of visual arts, I had kind of had a leg up on all the people around me. And I mean, not that I'm competitive, like I really wasn't very competitive at all. Actually, that kind of like all of that actually made me less competitive. I just wanted to be prepared. I had to survive. So like going back to Nashville was not an option. Why photography is a little bit like there was just nothing else, you know, for me. Like it was just, it was my road out of Nashville. And so I just, I held on for dear life. I don't know if you've been interviewed from anybody that's actually is based in Nashville. I don't want to make the whole podcast about Nashville, but I'm interested a little bit in why, maybe that's to segue into that, why you didn't, weren't interested in shooting commercially in Nashville just because of a lot of the history here with like the musicians, Mm -hmm. country music, and the people in that industry here are kind of unique in a certain way. The Dolly Partons of the world, (laughs) you know? Totally. So I'm curious why you were more attracted to the Northeast versus ever coming back and dipping your mm. toe into that world here? There's a really good reason for that, which is that I, my family was originally from the Northeast, from Maine. Mm. So there's a story about my mom where like maybe, maybe two weeks before Thanksgiving in 1949, my grandparents told my mom that they're moving to Nashville from Bangor, Maine. And you can just imagine how disruptive, I mean, my mom was really rooted in Bangor, Maine. She had friends. She loved the place. She was good there. She was in school. I mean, I guess this is the way they handled things back then. I don't know. But like just to tell her, you know, just two weeks before that everything was going to be uprooted and not really have a say. And this was because my grandfather had gotten a job at the Methodist board in, um, in Nashville. He was a Methodist minister. So he got this job. And so then on Thanksgiving Day, like after Thanksgiving dinner, they piled into the car and then drove the two day journey down to Nashville. And so my mom hated it. Like my mm-hmm. mom immediately hated it. And I, I have to say, I, don't, I think my grandmother hated it too. And probably my grandfather, I mean, he had like, he needed a job. So he liked the job, but I don't know if this is like, you know, Jim Crow, Nashville. So in Bangor, you know, they didn't have the separate water fountains and stuff like this. And, you know, my mom would, and my grandmother would both told a story about going to the first football game and then and everyone standing for Dixie the confederate national anthem so I grew up actually hearing these stories about how shitty Nashville was so I was really biased and actually I have to say unfortunately I'm still biased and and like I fight it and I know I know there's wonderful people in Nashville and I know there's wonderful people in the south and I know there's smart people in the South. And, you know, so I don't, but I, it's sort of like a, it takes me two steps to kind of like make that connection, like just because of how I was brought up. I mean, and I did grow up there. I left when I was 18 years old, about 19. So to answer that question about like, you know, so I, so my grandmother, my mom was talking shit about Nashville the whole time. And my grandmother was kind of praising the Northeast, like she would go visit New York or, you know, like um, there was this New York had this aura about it. I mean, or New York is already New York. So in addition to sort of feeling like I, I wanted to do photography, I kind of wanted to go to New York. And I remember there was a summer that I came back to Nashville and tried to do things after my freshman year, I think. I came back and uh, it was like kind of the worst summer of my life. I don't know. It was a kind of weird, awkward uh, who am I? Who? Where is this? You know, just like a hot summer mm-hmm. of Nashville, like, you know, seeing ex-girlfriends. And I don't know, I can't even, it was just weird. And I think I made the decision never, ever to go back. 
and live in that way. So, you know, there's this other part of it that's kind of embedded in my Nashville work, which is that, you know, when I was in Nashville and my mom was, you know, I have two parents, they're both musicians. So my dad was the you know, he played the French horn and they, and they actually met in the Nashville Symphony. My mom played the flute and my dad played the French horn. And kind of one of my favorite stories about them is that they were both married to other people when they met and totally had an affair and <laughs> then totally left those two people and then got married. And I like, I kind of love that. And they're, they're still together, you know, crazy about each other. What can I say? But we moved a lot. We weren't a military family by any stretch. You know, like we were, you know, we just moved for different reasons. And sometimes I'll be talking to my mom. I'll be like, why did we move from there? Like, what was wrong with that place? And so sometimes I swear, like, I think my mom just didn't want to clean up. Like, I think she just was like, we're moving and we were kids. So like, we just thought we had to move. Like, we just didn't, I, I didn't know any better. I didn't know people stayed. I mean, I had kids that stayed in their own, you know, their houses are, they're still in their, their parents' house, you know, whatever, how to say that. Like their parents are still living where they, they lived when we were in high school. My grandmother's house, however, the place that my grandparents bought in 1949, that house, my grandmother lived in until like she was very old until she had to go to like a, you know, a senior center. So that house actually represents like the anchor. You know, that's the house I dream about. To me, it's sort of the place I grew up, although I wasn't there all the time. Obviously, it was my grandmother's house, but it's sort of the anchor. And I was fond of my grandmother. I, you know, I was really close to her. And so like there was this powerful connection between my grandmother. So like that, that house and her, that represent my childhood in a way. And then all of these other places. I mean, we moved like, uh, I think it's like 13 times in the 18 years I lived there. I can barely remember some of them. We moved back to, some, they were apartment buildings. You know, my parents never owned a house. Like they owned a house once. They owned a house for one year and then they couldn't pay the mortgage. And so they sold it. And then we went back to apartments and we went back to moving around in different apartments. So my childhood was sort of transient in that way. But also, I mean, it sounds, I mean, it was chaotic. You know, I've been through many, many hours of therapy, so I can just tell you this story with, you know, calmly and with a straight face. I've talked to my mom about this, and I think that she had sort of a wanderlust. You know, she was sort of manic. And I say that lovingly. I mean, she's here. I don't know if she's going to hear this podcast, but like, but I think as soon as we unpacked everything, put everything on the walls, I feel like there was this like kind of clock ticking before the next time the itch was going to come to move again. So that's what I grew up with. So for Nashville, so it's funny, people hear that I'm from Nashville or they know I'm from Nashville and they'll be like, Greg, you know, tell me, like, what's a good place to eat in Nashville? And I'm like, I have no idea what to tell them, actually. And I, I have a friend here that's like maybe, li you know, lived in Nashville for a summer or a year or something like that. And he knows so many places to go and and like when I hear them I'm like oh yeah that's true yeah, yeah but I can't like my Nashville is like this amorphous place that's just, you know that's not it's it's ephemeral I don't feel rooted there in the least yet that's totally where I'm from why do you like photographing people so much and a lot of times strangers on top of that I think people are the most important thing to me. I've met people who they're more comfortable with dogs or animals than they are with people. So I know that there's like, this is just something, you know, this isn't everybody. I think I grew up like feeling like, you know, this connection to people was universal, that there were all this way. And I, I think maybe it's common, but for me, it's like it's strong. Like it's, it's really, I was staring at people when I was a kid. 
there's a Thomas Merton quote where he talks about he's there shopping in Louisville, Kentucky, which is where the Trappist monks were. And he talks about, he describes like this moment where he just looks out over all the people, like throngs of people shopping there. And I imagine delight and everything. And he just loves them. Like he feels like this deep love for them. And he sees them as like little pieces of divinity. He doesn't say this exactly, but he sees them like that God is in them. And to me, that's like, you know, God's not in the puffy cloud or, you know, like is elsewhere. Like God is like right here sitting next to you, you know, like Alanis Morissette. And so like to me, like that, that's the best way I could describe how I see people, that they're little pieces of divinity walking around. But also in their, all their quirkiness, you know what I mean? Like beyond like the weirdness of people, the, you'll see somebody and you think, uh, this person is challenging me, but like, that's just because I'm me, not because that person is flawed or something, you know, like I can't comprehend, you know, this person, like, that's why they're challenging to me, you know? But this is after many, many years of like, I, I was gravitated towards photographing people early on. Like it's just blind ambition. I don't know, like, you know, just an act of prowess. I have to photograph people. And I couldn't explain why. I wouldn't have been able to explain to you, like, in high school, why I wanted to photograph all the students in the school. I worked for the yearbook, but that was an excuse. And I worked for magazines, but that's an excuse. I just want to be photographing people. I've been thinking a lot about photography with social media and different things like that and what people are used to and what the types of images that get posted and shared and get attention. Because I got my BFA in photography and one of the things that we, I was lucky enough to have really great teachers in Missouri and, and you know, they were very big on focusing on subject matter, like should lead everything. What and school is that? Missouri, well, it's Missouri State. Now. Is, it a great, is it a great journalism program? No, that's, that Mizzou, that's Mizzou. Yeah, oh, that's okay. Mizzou. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. Mizzou okay. in Columbia, Missouri yeah. State, Springfield, Missouri. Um, I had two oh, really okay. two two really great teachers. One like learned under Jerry Yulesman in Florida. Oh wow! Um, and then one was uh, he went to Penn State, uh, which is also a great history of photography program. Mm -hmm. So I just got really lucky that these two really uh, great teachers picked this really small town in Missouri to get a job at. Incredible. Um, but. We, we had a lot of freedom in college and it was always subject matter driven. Like we, we self-assigned, they never picked anything for us ever in the four mm. years. Right. So we, we were always had to pick projects and choose like, what are you interested in? That was always a question and I always led with that. And then the technique and everything came later, mm -hmm. but it was always like, what are you, mm -hmm. what subjects are you interested in and why? And so it's fascinating to me when you're talking about that as subject matter people, has been this through line for you and you can dive into this more, but it seems like how you navigated your career was like, what, what can I do that allows me to do this, to document this subject matter that I'm interested in, like commercially, whatever. And that's how you did that. Talk about that in terms of like building a career as a photographer and not getting, not focusing so much on gear, not focusing so much on effects and technology, but more of like what's out in the world that you can put your camera at that draws you in repeatedly. I kind of landed on a, a piece of equipment that is a conversation starter. I photograph people, but I also photograph people with a wooden camera that's, you know, I have to get underneath the cloth and it looks like, you know, you've gone back in time or something. It's like weird. And also, you know, it's like, you know, the images on the back of the ground glass, which is like the best show on earth. And it forces me to talk to people. When I first 
came to New York, like one of the things that kept me in New York was all, that there's, you know, what, 12 million people there, you know, on any given day. And there, there could be a hundred people on a, on a street corner. And so like for somebody who's interested in photographing people, like I loved it. I just loved it. And when I first, you know, it was the eighties when I first got to New York and like men still wore hats. It was rare, but you know, like it was sort of like still that old world. So I loved it. I love diners. I love the people in diners. I love the way they talked. I loved all of it. Like, I loved all that shit. But I was also terrified of them. I mean, completely terrified of them. And this is important because I was attracted to photograph them. I mean, I really wanted to photograph them badly. And I, I, that's, that's like a need. That was like, I, like me photographing people is like a need, like oxygen or some shit. But there was this repulsion or something like a, you know, a fear basically where uh, I was sort of terrified of them. The thing I really wanted to photograph most, I was terrified of. And so that was a conundrum for years. So, and I would get around it the way many photographers do, which is like, I look like, you know, I kind of photograph the persons in the corner of the frame and I'm, it looks like I'm photographing the garbage can, but I'm actually photographing that person. And I wouldn't talk to people. I would just like go up to people kind of close and, and photograph them like, like, let's just pretend I don't exist or something. But I would go home at night and feel like shit. Like, I felt like, oh, I was like, oh, my, these people want to kill me. Uh, like, I narrowly escaped photographing people all day. And um, there was all these in ideas in my head about, like, the people are are really hostile. And there there's all this negative energy coming from people. And, and then I started photographing with, you know, I just want to pause for a second and say this was during college. And I met my, one of my professors was Lois Connor who photographs with, um, you know, she photographs with a seven by 17 inch camera or eight by 10 camera. But you know, like you're, if you're, if you hang out with Lois for five minutes, she'll encourage you to photograph with a large format camera. And being her student was like, there was an extra pressure that like, I mean, she would kind of tolerate, you know, a 35 millimeter camera, but like, like at the same time that I was sort of terrified of people, there was this a sort of a swell in me that liked to photograph with a large format camera. And so I, f I started photographing with a, a four by five camera, but that was a press camera. And I started using it the way I would, like the way Ouija would. I use the rangefinder and I would use these um, graphmatic backs. I wasn't using the ground glass, but basically all that to say that I'm using a large, large-ish camera that's like a the size of a lunchbox to photograph people far away. And so like it, it really is. So I'm, I'm actually more obvious, but I'm not talking to people. So that kind of amped up that whole dynamic of photographing people and not talking to them. And of course, like I, maybe I would accidentally, I mean, I would, people might say, you know, what are you doing? Or, you know, like there was like, sometimes I would like kind of accidentally talk to people, but for the most part, like I'm, I'm still in this phase of not talking to people. And then I arrived at this eight by 10 camera that was, there was a guy selling it on a blanket on 14th street. And I, I bought it. And it was an old camera, like really, like it was like a hundred year old camera, clunky thing. I mean, it was a Kodak camera and like, no, there was nothing special about the camera, but, and it was real, it was a field camera, but still anyway. So then, and of course I, I wanted to photograph people with it. I wanted to, and I, you know, I photographed my then girlfriend, who's now my wife, who I pointed the camera at her first, but I really wanted to photograph out on the street. You know, the street is like this place where it's random. Like, I, I think my attraction to P, to the street is that it's people plus randomness. And so, like, you just have this constant supply of new people. For somebody who wants to photograph people, it's like, it's the best thing ever. You know, like, because you're never going to see the same person twice almost. 
And like, I mean, I would say like maybe for somebody who has difficulty with commitment, you don't have to worry about somebody like, where were you last Thursday? You know what I mean? Like there, you know, this constantly new, new, new. So I started photographing on the street with eight by 10 camera and immediately I, I realized I had to talk to people. And so it forced me to talk to people and that, that was everything. And that, mm. that was, I mean, I would, I would just start my career right then. Like that was it. There was a whole pre-career, let's say 1988 to 1995. That was like me figuring out this, which is that I accidentally started talking to people. It wasn't like I, I knew what I was doing, you know. What is it about the, the talking to people that unlocked? Is it a, you don't know what this person is going to, their history, and it's just kind of this unknown like treasure box of one individual and what that interaction is like? Well, so what I realized was that, you know, like I, I would go, I used to go home like feeling like shit. I would go home and like, you know, it'd be like rocking back and forth, like, oh my God. And, and, uh, but then I started talking to people and I was like, wow, you know, like I would go home after a day of talking to people and photographing them with eight, eight by 10 camera. And I was like, it was amazing. Like I, I felt this euphoria. They weren't thinking shit about me. They weren't thinking anything about me. They were they were in their lives, and I knew a little bit about their lives, and and I had their contact information. I was I was a part of the world suddenly, and so like in this way, it like opened up the world to me. And it wasn't until if you look at my photographs now, you know my pictures are these kind of they look like these scenes, you know, like where you know nobody's really looking at the camera, and kept that going. Like I've kept that going since. I would say 1997 or so. And, and like, but there is, there is this period when I first started photographing with the, photographing with the eight by 10 camera where, you know, like I kind of centered the person and the person's kind of looking in the camera and there's like testimonials, like where there, there's eye contact. And I would look at my old work, like pictures, uh, pictures that I made with a small camera. And I love, like, by the way, I just want to say, like, I love Robert Frank. I love Gary Winogrand. I love Ouija, I love like so much of photography that has a moment in it, like this kind of suspended moment. And I realized I was like, you know, these pictures are boring. These pictures I'm making with the eight by 10 camera where people are like looking at me. I'm like, I mean, they're interesting. Yes. And, you know, could photograph anybody almost and just do like this head and shoulders portrait of them or like whatever ground figure and ground. That's interesting, but that story is quickly told. So I, I started, like, a, it was sort of a, a, a leap of faith, but I was like, well, what if, what if I just photographed, what if I photographed with an 8x10 camera the way I was photographing with a Leica, and I just made it look like it was made with a Leica? And so that was, a, that was the next jump. That was really what, you know, that moment of, you know, where I, I didn't feel like I could, like, I felt like I was breaking some rule, some divine rule that you can't say, look, don't look at me, don't smile. And you're like, give people directions. You know, like when I came over here, you were standing there, you were looking at her and turn your foot counterclockwise and all those things. Like I couldn't say any of those things, but I would walk over and I, I mean, I was still the same photographer. Like I would walk the same photographer that walked around with a Leica. I was now walking around with an eight by 10 camera and I would like see some amazing thing. And, you know, like you or like me or like any photographer, you're driven by invisible forces to make this picture. You know, you're just like, you know, if somebody's standing there. They're like, you know, whoa, what's gotten into you? I'm like, I have to make this picture. But the first thing I did with the eight by 10 camera was like, I ruined the moment. Like, that was the first thing I did. Like, I walked over and they're like, you know, they looked over at me. They stopped talking. They stopped doing whatever they were doing. And I was like, listen, I want to photograph you. But before you were 
doing this amazing thing. Like, you know, and there was this, you know, the first time I did it was at a swimming pool. Like I was, I had gotten permission to photograph at a public pool and, and this woman, like the, her daughter had laid down in her lap, but then like shot up again, the way kids do, like they, she jumped in the water and I was like, oh, I was like, oh, I can't. And I didn't want to live another moment of, I didn't want to live my life without having made that picture. Like it drove me crazy. And so like the first thing I noticed about moving to large format was that I missed pictures like crazy. I couldn't stand it. And so I said, look, excuse me. And this, I'm fully clothed and this woman's in her swimsuit. So like, I'm like, <laughs> I'm, uh, my mind is screaming. And I say, excuse me, listen, you know, just a few seconds ago, like your daughter, like laid down in your lap is really beautiful. I mean, I'm a photographer, by the way, you know, like, I don't know, you know, I said all my, my spiel and, uh, you know, I'll have permission to photograph here. Da, da, da. And she said, oh yeah, that's great. No problem. You know, and she was like, hey, come here, you know, like told her daughter to lay down in her lap. And, you know, it's not a perfect photograph, but like it, it was the first time I crossed through somebody's personal bubble and said, excuse me, listen, you know, that was amazing. Can we recreate that? So that's what I do. But I do it out of necessity. I mean, I also kind of like the way it looks, but I make a lot of bad pictures, you know, this way. <laughs> you know, I mean, I should just say that, like, you know, it doesn't always work. And I miss a lot of pictures that just straight up miss them, you know, like where they never to be seen again. So I have this relationship to the moment, that magic moment that we all love, that thing that keeps us in the game, the raw moment. I love it, too. But I also have this relationship to know that, like, maybe that was never mine to begin with. You know, would I have gotten that with a Leica? I don't know. Like, would I have gotten it with a 4x5 camera? I don't know. Maybe that was never mine to begin with. I think I'm closer to getting it, this other moment that's based on that other moment, this new moment, that's the closest I'm ever going to get, I think, actually. We actually grow up with this idea in our heads, like from National Geographic or from, you know, photographers that, that have photographed, you know, like, and I'm not saying they're bad photographers or anything. I mean, they, they do what they do, but they don't talk to anybody. So we assume, I mean, actually, we, we, no, I don't even know if they don't talk to people. I mean, maybe they do. Like, we don't know how people make pictures. I don't see how, like, you can actually photograph for something like National Geographic or newspapers or magazines and, and not talk to them. I mean, how do you get the caption information? Like, you know, I, I think, in fact, it's erroneous that people do talk to people. So, I, I mean, it, it's totally necessary. And it just so happens that now I'm a little addicted to it. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm still just as afraid of anybody I was from day one. But now I, I can't not talk to them. I'm a little bit like like Superman and Clark Kent. If I had my camera, I could talk to anybody. I mean, anybody. And my daughters are like, you know, like, Dad, you know, daddy. Like there's a picture and like, I'm like, okay, okay, let's do it. And I'll get the camera out and then I'll talk to anybody. But if I don't have the camera, I'm like, I mean, I'm just sitting there. Like, I'm not, I have no reason to talk to people. <laughs> I mean, in our, in our, in our, in our community, I'm like kind of quiet. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, you know, but like I'm with the camera, I'm unstoppable. But without the camera. It's interesting how the camera gives you permission to like. Totally move into this other uh, it's probably a really nebulous question um i don't know if you can even answer it very cleanly but let's see more than ever i feel like we live in a very divisive world right now mm -hmm. socially mm -hmm. politically all that stuff is there anything you've learned about people strangers that we assume is incorrect well one thing i've learned from from all this talking to people is that you don't know shit about people from the way they look i mm -hmm. mean you know nothing you don't know anything about their parents. You don't know anything about their 
upbringing. You don't know anything about their identity. I mean, you, I mean, you might, might be able to like tell something by their hair or their dress or, you know, something, but no, like you don't know anything. You might see a Muslim praying on the, on the street in New York. You don't know shit about that person. You don't know anything about their struggles, their secrets, what makes them laugh. You don't know shit. So for me, it's been actually enlightening to talk to all these people. I mean, we're talking a lot. Of, I mean, it's a lot of people. And, and I will say, I mean, right away, uh, I don't get to know people. I don't know them for very long. Like I know them for like maybe 15 minutes. You know what I mean? Like that's not long. And so I don't know them either. I will say that they are not what I think. Like I'll think this person is definitely going to say no to me. And they say yes. And then I say, oh, this person is definitely going to say yes to me. They're going to love me. And they don't. They say no. Or they, they're, you know, they're, they go in a wholly different direction. There was a woman walking with this long, like, cruel, Cruella de Vil kind of coat. It was like white, long, white fur coat with, like, spots on it. And she was, like, walking with slippers on. I mean, my first impression was that she was homeless. That she was, I mean, I just couldn't tell. Like, I, I even thought, like, don't, maybe don't mess with her. You know, like, she's not 100% there. She was smoking and she was, I don't know, like something about her, like, gave me the impression that she was accessible. And so I went up to her and talked to her and she's this opera singer. She's an opera singer. Mm. And she was, she was about to go to church to, she, this was on Ash Wednesday. And so I asked her if she was getting her ashes and, and she was like, she said, yeah, I'm getting my ashes. And then I said, oh, you know, well, can't, maybe I could photograph you. And she was like, I'm not going to wear the ashes out of the church. Are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> And then she's, I said, oh, my God, you know, like, you're, you're this opera singer. You must sing so beautifully, you know? And she was like, oh. And she was like, oh, not anymore, you know? Like, and I was like, but I'm sure it's beautiful. Anyway, we had this lovely conversation, and, like, I didn't know shit about her before I had that conversation. I mean, I knew, and I still don't know shit about her, actually, even after having talked to her for 15 minutes. But I will say that I know more. The, what I've learned from people is that I don't know anything about them. You know, people are these mysteries. And so instead of like, you know, like we actually, I mean, the, in our world today, in our divisive world, I will say that we think we know it all. Like we know this person, we know that person, we know something because of their political affiliation, we know this or that. And people will act in ways that make us feel like we know them. Like they, they will kind of back that up you know like we're like that person's gonna be a jerk and then that person's kind of acts like a jerk but even still i have to say we actually probably should be going at it differently we should be thinking this person's a complete mystery to me actually and that's that's kind of the way that's the way i see it that's beautiful i think part of the reason your work stands out is you're really great with the scenes right so like you have a person your photograph person but they're usually a lot of your work they're not like really close to the camera. Like you see their entire body, they're a little farther away and you have a lot of context around them of the scene that they're in. But none of it is, none of it is distracting. Like it's, it's hard to take good photographs where you're including more elements of the scene and not it not take away from like the person or the subject matter or something. Like usually there's something else that's distracting that can throw you off. 
and just ruin a picture. So I don't know if you can talk about that in terms of some of it's like composition, what you're deciding to like include and what you're deciding to exclude, obviously around the edges of the frame. Uh, but then you're coupling that with the people in there feel very open and vulnerable and honest at the same time. And that's the magic moment still. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if you can talk about your work in that way in terms of what you're looking for, in terms of the scenes and how you pull all that off, which is very difficult to do. You know, I mentioned that I had this love affair with Gary Winogrand when I was younger with his work. And there was something about Gary Winogrand's photographs that where he's actually including a lot and and he was doing it even harder. Like to me, it's like he had he wasn't saying anything to anybody. He's like just taking a million, billion photographs. And he was able to balance out this world, like in the background of, you know, like the, it could be airport gate or, you know, just the street of New York. But somehow, like in the, in the best pictures, you know, there's this harmony and you're just like, how the hell did he do that? You know, it could be, you know, there's this one photograph of the, I think it's Alexander Calder at a opening at MoMA where there's like a, somebody's blowing a smoke ring and the ring goes above Calder and it's like a halo. It's fucking, it's like such a great picture. But meanwhile, everybody's partying and Calder looks like he's about to die or something. Calder looks like, I mean, it's just incredible. There's, there's this Christ reference in where Calder is like, and it looks like the last supper. Like Mm. he's at a table with all these people and they're all partying and it's an opening for him and they're all partying around him and i'm like fucking hell like how did he do that and i love that i love that so like to me that's the goal the goal is to have you know to back off as much as you can like before you start getting like the honda odyssey or you know like before you get the the ugly shit and but then you still have this world that like you can like that says something, you know, the world is actually another person in the picture, you know, like I got the people like these are the actors, but the stage is like this thing. It's just it's like saying everything about who they are. But I'm also, you know, like I'm I'm vexed constantly by, you know, the yellow thing, you know, some weird or like those tents that they have, like if you go to a street fair um, there's like, it's like these four pole, like white tents that like, you know, and there's like white tent, white tent, white tent, white tent, you know, where you get, I mean, those things are so ugly and there is nothing, no redeemable value to those. I mean, except for like, if it rains, but like, you know, um, in a photograph, like they're deadly, you know what I mean? I'm almost afraid if like, you know, my students come back from photographing at like some street fair, you know, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. There's nothing about it. That's good. Anyway. So there's certain things that are just always ugly and, um, I love playing with the world in this way. Like, um, it's a little bit like, have you ever carried like a a mattress through the city with a friend? You know, it's a little bit like that. Mm -hmm. Photographing the world is a little bit like carrying a mattress. It's unwieldy, you know, it's, it's like, it's, but listen, if you were to suddenly say, excuse me, do you mind moving your car? You know, do you mind, you know, like I talk to people, it's my superpower. Like, so I'm able to say, you know, like, look, this is an ugly car this would be a better picture without this car or without this thing or without that hat or without, you know, whatever it is, you know, or I can just move entirely to another place, you know, like, so that to me is my superpower. And I will say, and I shouldn't say this completely publicly, but I will say I'm not a photojournalist in the pictures that we're talking about. 
I do work as a photojournalist. Like I just want to say, I do work for the New York <laughs> Times and I work for NPR and I am a journalist in those moments, but I am the rest of the time I, and probably pulsing through my veins, you know, my, in my DNA, I'm a fine artist. And so like, I'm willing to take these liberties with the picture unless I'm working as a journalist. And I love the, that kind of play metaphor. I think that's a great way because we can all visualize that in terms of, you know, you're finding strangers and they almost kind of become the actors and you're seeing mm. and kind of creating these little worlds, which I think is this mystery of photography that I'm, I think we all get obsessed with is it's a little, it's like a window into something else. Sometimes it's like reality. Sometimes it's like not quite, but you get transported somewhere and you're, I think what's magical about your pictures is they're shot in, in a way, in a distance and an angle and a perspective that it does transport people. Like it feels like your camera lens point of view feels like that's where I would stand. So as a human, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like I'm immediately there. Mm -hmm. And not all pictures do that. So, yeah. So, well, that that's also, you know, because I don't I don't get down low. I don't, you know, like and that's also mm -hmm. because I'm, you know, not I mean, I certainly can get down low. I have gotten down low, but I or high or whatever, you know, like I have I have the extremes, but I have this sort of empirical point of view where I, I look at the world straight on. And um, I really love that as sort of a default, you know, like I love the way the world looks where it's presented in this way that's like, you know, and this is all very general because I have lots of different pictures, but like, you know, like I'm, I really love you being able to see it. Mm. So I'm, I'm making a picture that within my picture, you're able to make your picture. Mm -hmm. So like you're able to hang out in my picture and be like, oh, look over there. Oh, look, this is this, you know, so in backing off, like I'm actually enabling you to discover things. And so like that to me is a little game that I play with my viewer. I enable them to live within my picture. Let's talk a little bit about a couple of projects you've got, maybe some backstory on the projects. Mm -hmm. So we'll, let's dip into Nashville. You can kind of tell the story about what, where that came from and why. So as I mentioned, um, uh, I grew up in Nashville and I had a certain amount of teenage angst while I lived there. And and I mean, I, I think that's pretty common. And and then I, when I left, like I went to college, like I really wanted to leave. Like I really, uh, I had like sort of a bat out of hell kind of um, feeling about that. And and then I went to New York, which was a place that supported my idea of that there was places that were better than Nashville. You know, like I want to say that I didn't miss Nashville, but that's not that would be a lie. But I, I went to New York and I lived in New York for like 20 years and I'm working, uh, you know, I go to college there. I am a professional photographer there. I'm doing commercial work there. I mean, in fact, I'm getting married and I'm starting a family. I, you know, I had a, a daughter by the time I started um, photographing in Nashville. And but I was um, I, I do I have a I have a belief that the best pictures come from things that scare you. And so like up to that point. I had photographed things, and even with this idea of that scary things are the best pictures, I, I often thought, like, what if I were to go back to Nashville? Like, the more time that passed, I realized that that was like a truth that I, I couldn't deny, that I had to go back to Nashville. And, and um, in 2008, I applied for a, a Guggenheim. And first of all, I just want to say, like, I was not I didn't even think I was somebody that would apply for a Guggenheim. Like all these people I mentioned, but you know, like Gary Winogrand and Robert Frank and all the, you know, like Dean Arbus and, you know, like they all have Guggenheims. And so certainly I didn't think of myself in that club. I still don't. I had 
some friends that were encouraging me to apply. And so I applied and, and, and I got it, which was like winning the lotto, in my opinion. You know, I have severe um, imposter syndrome and it makes, you know, getting a Guggenheim, Guggenheim only makes that worse. I didn't feel like I deserved it. And so all of that, that's just a quick aside. But like, so, but I thought, what is the thing when you get a Guggenheim? I, I thought, you know, like you got to do something big. And so I was like, what is the thing that I could do with a Guggenheim that I couldn't do? I couldn't do otherwise. So I decided to go back to Nashville and make pictures there. And I actually, my proposal for the Guggenheim, you know, you can propose anything and, and then do anything, do something else. They don't care. You know, they want you to be free. My proposal was to photograph American band camps, marching band camps of the South. And that was like connected entirely to my father. And um, because my father was a band director and there was a lot of like kind of angst around, you know, band and just that whole idea. I mean, to me, it was, it was, it's like, it's like this military, it's sort of rooted in military things. They march, they have uniforms on. And, but at the same time, it's like so raw. I mean, it's like you're out there in the summer heat, you know, for band camp, you're not wearing uniforms at all in, and there's like sweaty teenagers and Um, Anyway, so like to me, I thought that was really interesting. And I did photograph band camps for a project. But once I got to Nashville, like there was something happened like where I I just I was like, I I have to do more. I I can't just photograph band camps like this is it was all so overwhelming. And I also had this relationship to Nashville where I'd, I'd lived in all these different places. But so I knew Nashville from 1978 was my Nashville, right? And, um, and I was arriving in 2008, Nashville. So like in so 20 years had passed. And so like I went down to Nashville and I'm looking around and I'm like, this place, this isn't the place that I grew up. You know, my grandmother had since died and my parents had moved away. And so like, I really didn't know anybody there either. You know, I had some friends and I hung out with them, but like, um, but no, like it was really like this emotional ghost town for me. There was this like strong disconnected feeling And I wanted so bad, like I wanted to go back in time. So photography for me became this conduit by which I can like go back to the past. And that was what I ended up doing. So I, I, I would just drive around and I would look for anything that smacked of my childhood or things I saw, like, or, you know, things that are from my past. And, and I realized a lot of these things were completely emotional, like something invisible to the human eye, like not something that anybody else is going to be able to see or know. You know, if you turn right at a certain corner, there was a certain intersection we always turned at when I went to my grandmother's house. Who's going to know that? But the thing is that, and I didn't want to make a project where I had to stand there and say, oh, well, this is when my grandmother was stubbed her toe or, you know, whatever. Like, I, you know, I didn't want to have to explain everything. I was like, these have to be universal. This has to be, I have to make pictures that are not just about my childhood, but about anybody's childhood. And that's a tall order because I don't know you. I don't know anybody. But I was like, look, Greg, just make pictures about your childhood make pictures that speak to you about your childhood, and then we'll go from there. So I'm driving around Nashville and I'm photographing, like I'm looking for things that, it's like I have this like 1978 overlay over the city and I'm like just looking for things. And this is like, sometimes it's just like some, you know, the first picture I took was this picture of a guy He's behind like a big box store, which we didn't have box stores in in 1978, but it's always behind the Whole Foods, which totally 
you you wouldn't know that that's Whole Foods. It could have been Target or something. But like it was, but it's like this big wall, and there's a guy that's like his head down, like he's taking a smoke break, but he's like his head down, head heads heads down, and so and that was the first thing I saw, and I made that picture, and I was like, hmm, maybe I could do this. I mean, I'm like my mind is screaming like this is a going to be a huge failure. You know, and I felt this pressure, like I got to perform and all this bullshit. But I knew like each picture I made was like step closer to this idea that I was traveling in time. And like, why would I travel in time? That's cute. That's a cute trick. But like, really, what am I getting at? Like when I was my grandfather, the guy who brought us down to Nashville died when I was one year old. So my mom, if you think about it, like my mom was uprooted from her world when she was 10 and then driven down to Nashville, Tennessee, and then kind of abandoned by that guy. So like, and I like invisible to me, like, I don't, you know, I don't, I never met him. So I don't, you know, like I was one year old. I mean, I met him, but I didn't, I don't remember him. So all I grew up with was this, like everything around him, you know, like people talking about him to people talking about how great he was. Like I grew up with the hole that he left. And I would even say that I occupied that hole. I filled that hole. Like I was a baby. And so everybody's like, Oh, Greg, you know, but he was a minister. Like he was, um, he was sort of a pillar of the community. Like that's a big, that's kind of a tall order. All of that. That's the part that I don't want to have to explain to anybody. Exactly. I want you to be able to get that from the pictures. I want you to be able to see the hole that was left by this guy that I had to fill. And so in that way, I want you to feel a hole in your world. And I don't even care if it's Nashville. Like, to be honest, like, I don't, you know, I, for me, it's Nashville, but for you, it's whatever, Missouri. It could be New Jersey. Like for me, like that wasn't even so important. It's not about country music. It's not the history of Nashville. That's for sure. I don't even know if it's the history of me. In some ways I want it I'm okay if it asks more questions than it answers. I'm okay with that. I think those are some of the best photographs, though. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that ask yeah. more questions than answers, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you get the answers too fast, sometimes it's uh, the ride's over too fast, and so it feels kind of cheap. Uh, Did that, that make sense? Yeah, totally makes sense. I, oh. I, it, it's hard for me because I live here, and so some of the places you photograph, I know where you were. Mm-hmm. So I have context and history, personal history that... Mm-hmm. Somebody that's never been here would they're, they're going to relate to it in a different level. Yeah, I should say that that um, actually it's not entirely like you know like there's some inside jokes you know like so mm-hmm. yeah. I, wa- <laughs> I, wa- I I um like so I I watched the uh, Robert Altman's Nashville like several times when I was photographing down there. I love that film. I, I photographed at the Parthenon, which mm-hmm. is sort of like you know I remember um, studying the Parthenon and art history in college and. I remember going over to the teacher and saying, you know, like when he's like telling us about the Parthenon in Greece, in Athens, you know, I said, oh, you know, I'm from Nashville. We have a Parthenon there. And he like laughed at me, you know, like I was like, no, I mean, I was like, you know, I mean, we have like an exact replica of of the Parthenon inch for inch, you know, like, you know, and I mean, he was probably, I mean, he was probably like, I get it, but like, it's like the biggest ball of yarn or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's sort of like, so like I photographed a lot at the Parthenon. Like I love, you know, I would just go there and visit, you know what I mean? I would just go there. I mean, it's like, it just can't be beat on a warm summer 
evening, you know, you just go there after the sun goes down and it's just like, they start to light up. I mean, it's just, no, I have some, I have some stuff in Nashville that I love. I mean, there's things I love. There's people there I love. And so it's not all like, I hate the place. Like it really isn't at all. Like it's, there's aspects of Nashville that I love. There's aspects of the South I love. I mean, I love the sound in the evening, you know, like the crickets and the, whatever those are, the cicadas or, right. <laughs> um, you know, like just go, I mean, I love that stuff. I love sweet tea. I love sweet stuff. I love dessert. I love barbecue. I love all that. Like I love the really, you know, yeah, the food that will give you diabetes in mm-hmm. two days. But I think that, you know, for me, I was really interested in like photographing the impossible, which is like photographing my uh, childhood without you having to know what my childhood was about. Yeah. That's pretty impossible. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you, uh, yeah, I think you did a great job with it. So. Oh, thanks. They're, they're very fascinating images to look at, especially from an insider for me. Okay. So let's, let's uh, kind of go through a couple other projects here real quick. So explain the uh, waiting for the bus in Evaldi project. There's my morning bus project, which is kids waiting for the morning bus in Connecticut. That was a response, really, to the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012. And we had, you know, more or less recently moved to Connecticut. And, um, you know, I lived in New York for 20 years. And I, you know, I got married there and my wife and I were, we had a one and a half year old, we moved to Connecticut. And by 2012, that one and a half year old was six. And, um like so many people around the world were shocked at that, at the shooting in Sandy Hook. And, um, and that was like, you know, I mean, Sandy Hook's not next door. It's like an hour for me, but it was still really close to home. I mean, when I got the text alerts for that shooting, it was like, you know, there was a shooting and that's not good. And then it was a shooting at an elementary school and that's not good. And it was a shooting at an elementary school in Connecticut. And, and I thought, okay. And so as I read the text, like it just got closer and closer to home. And it was just disbelief. And and I think, you know, and talking, getting back to like a divided world, you know, like if the shooting wasn't bad enough, I thought that our country's response to the shooting was even worse. And so like the kind of non-response or the kind of like, you know, inability to like, you know, come up with gun laws that, you know, could protect us within the face of like, I mean, irrefutable evidence that we have too many guns in this country. I mean, it's just kind of getting back to this idea of like, I don't like photographing the thing itself. Like I don't, I am not going to go on a crusade and like, I'm not going to just become like some zealot that, I mean, I could, you know, I, I mean, it's not a bad thing to protest, like to have a sign that says, you know, less guns or whatever, like, you know, like our, our children are precious. I mean, you know, uh, hello, but I'm like, what, how can I photograph this problem in a way that's like, you know, that really gets to the heart of it. And so in that way that I photograph Nashville, where I'm photographing my childhood without photographing my childhood, I thought, how can I photograph guns without photographing guns? And on the day after, like, you know, when the shooting happened, you know, I work for magazines, I'm a regular contributor to magazines. So like, I know all these photo editors and the day after a magazine, uh, a major magazine asked me to said, look, you know, like maybe go down there and see what you can do. And um, so I, I drove to Newtown the day after the shooting and I was there with all the, you know, the, all of the, you know, media from all over the world. I mean, all over the world, like descended upon this small town the way they do in Uvalde and um, uh, Santa Fe and I mean, anywhere 
there's a big news event, like all this news arrives and it's sort of like the second arrow. There's like the first arrow of the of the tragedy itself. And then there's like the second arrow, which is like, you know, all the media descending upon a, on a town at the worst possible moment. I was there and I was trying to make pictures. I went to the school. I went, you know, and there's like balloons and stuff and there's just media everywhere. I mean, there is no way talk about like backing off and and getting like the environment. There is no picture without like a crew or without a like a with a camera or without uh, a, like an, a media truck or something. And I went down there and I just thought I was kind of sickened. I mean, I was sickened by the event itself, but I was kind of sickened by the media. Like, I just was like, oh, God, you know, like, this is horrible. If, if somebody happened to uh, mail a letter in Newtown that day, they had like a dozen reporters on them. So I was like, you know, the best thing I could do for Newtown is leave. I'm not a journalist. So I just drove home and I, and I drove like on the drive home, I was like, what is the right picture? Like if the picture of the, you know, I took a picture of the school, I took a picture of the media, I took a picture of all those, I tried making pictures. Like, it's not like I didn't make pictures, but like, I just thought all those pictures sucked. What is the right picture? So then I got back and, you know, weeks went by. In fact, um, I would say months went by, but I, I think I had to go to the airport or something and on my way, like I had to wake up early and I drove and, um, and on my way, like I saw these kids waiting for the morning bus and I was like, whoa, I've seen that my whole life. I waited for the bus, but like, it's different. It looks different now. Like they really look vulnerable out there. And by the way, like the Monday after my daughter waited for the bus the next Monday after the shooting was on a Friday where I had to say goodbye to her. And, and I felt like I was like, bye. And we couldn't even say what we were thinking. Like we were all thinking like, I might never see you again. Those parents, the parents in Sandy Hook, they never saw their, the kids went to school that morning and they never saw them again. And that's like happened a crazy number of times. Like that's not just once, like once and we got it over with. No, I mean, this is, over 10 years ago, and we've had countless school shootings. And I mean, we've had countless mass shootings, but we've like, like when you go to the movies, you go to the shopping mall, you go anywhere, and you're, you are at risk of being shot, not because we're at war. You're at the risk of getting shot because we have a shitty constitutional amendment. It's like written poorly. That's why you're at risk. That amendment has been weaponized by Madison Avenue, by the gun lobby. Anyway, I could go on and on about that, but but basically, I saw kids waiting for the bus differently, and I realized that I was like, that could be a picture. But as soon as I thought that, that I could be a picture, I had no idea how I would make that picture. I thought, you know, I was like, <laughs> I was like, that would be great. I was like, you know, if I could just photograph kids waiting for the boarding bus, how do you do that? Like, you know, like, how do you get permission? Like, how do you do all that? You know, and so like, I, I started with the kid closest to me, which was my daughter. And, and then I asked a friend if I could photograph his son. And then I photographed some other friends, kids. And then like, you know, and projects are like that, you know, like projects are like more than two. You know, you need three and you have a project. I, it started slow. It's like, and I'm obviously in no rush. You know what I mean? I, I have like, I've photographed Ash Wednesday for 25 years. You know what I mean? Like, so like it, it spoke to me to work this way. So I started photographing 
kids waiting for the boarding bus. And I wait, you know, and it's sort of like they're being photographed for the yearbook in a way because they're, you know, it might look like if you just look at all the pictures, like I just jump out of a car and like, you know, say, excuse me, can I take a picture? <laughs> and, uh, but no, but it's like, it's it's like sometimes a week in advance. I'm like, look, you know, I'm going to photograph your daughter. Or, you know, could I, you know, or may I photograph your kid or, and also I'm asked the permission of the kids. Like, it's not just, you know, the parents and me dictating to the kid that they're going to be photographed. Like the kids are like, nah, I'm not into it or whatever. But usually they're into it. You know, you, the kids are like, you know, they get dressed up or they, you know, they do things, you know. So the actual making of the pictures is like this kind of fun, kind of lighthearted thing. But the message, I hope, of the work itself is that children are precious, which is kind of gets back to that the Thomas Merton quote that we're all like these little pieces of divinity. Like if I could just nail that every single picture, that we're like these precious things, like that we, that we're just, that we're missing the point kind of. So I wanted to have this universal appeal. Like I want a Trump supporter, a gun owning Trump, Trump supporter to look at those pictures and be like, wow, you know, I waited for the bus or I waited with my kids at the bus. Like, I want it to resonate with everybody because we need everybody. This is a problem that affects all of us, even gun owners, even hunters, even people that grew up hunting with their grandfathers, people that are members of the NRA. I get it. But we're shooting children. That is something we could, should all agree on. Listen, the school bus is the ugliest vehicle on the road. It's orange and yellow and black, and it's got stickers and reflectors and lights on it, and it's like got a stop sign that flips out and all that stuff. All that stuff is because we want children to be safe. Republicans and Democrats, everybody has agreed, you know, we have a funky vehicle that delivers our children safely to and from home to school. You know what I mean? Everybody agrees on that. So we actually agree, like the school bus, its mere existence is an indication that we actually agree that we want our children to be safe. But somehow we've like completely distorted our humanism. It's crazy. We are living in crazy times because we somehow don't agree right now because of the gun thing we can't agree that we have too many guns. It's obvious, you know what I mean? It's, it's just crazy. You know, I'm a father, like I'm an angry father. I photograph county fairs and, you know, it's hardly groundbreaking. I don't know how to say it, but like, you know, like I'm, I'm not, like this found me. This is just a really important, like I don't think there's anything more important. I'm a little bit nervous right now, like it's a new school year. I'm a little scared. I'm a little nervous because there's going to be school shootings now. Like guaranteed. We haven't done shit for gun safety. We haven't we haven't even scratched the surface. And we're just going to have another school shooting. I mean, we just had a school shooting at UNC. So the clock is ticking, but it's going to be the same thing over and over again until something changes, until we all kind of agree that we have too many guns. Oh, anyway, so actually, but you asked about the Uvalde pictures. And so after 10 years of making those photographs in Connecticut, there was a horrific shooting in Uvalde, Texas. There was a photo editor at New Yorker, Bowen Fernie, who um, suggested that we photograph or do something about the Uvalde shooting. But we didn't know what to do exactly. Not running the pictures 
from Connecticut, but were making a new body of work. And they actually didn't necessarily think to photograph in Uvalde, but that shooting happened in May. And so school was out in Uvalde for the summer. So over the course of the summer, the idea morphed to this crazy idea of like photographing back to school in Uvalde. And so we weren't sure how people were going to react to that. And certainly, I mean, it was sensitive, crazy sensitive. And we were totally respectful of that, you know, the fact that it was, you know, like approaching. I mean, all of these communities are kind of broken down by the media. Like, I will just straight up say that. So like entering into Uvalde with as a member of the media, like I was very respectful of like, I was like, if you want me to fuck off, I'm totally with you. I get it. But as it turns out, when we went down there and we started talking to people, there was actually a strong community of people who were really interested in telling the story and getting the word out. I mean, people not unlike you and I, who like want the story to be told. They wanted it to be put out there. So we, we started talking to people who were willing to let us photograph their kids. The kids were into it. So we started photographing, you know, one at a time. And it was, it was hard because actually they, it was dark down there at, when the bus came. So there was all these technical issues, you know, with it being dark and everything. But but it, as it turns out, it was meaningful and it it hit the right note. You know, the children are vulnerable. They were going back to school. And we photographed like on the first, I don't think it was the first week, it was the second week. You know, the parents are scared to send their kids back to school. You know, we're no safer now than we were 10 years ago or one year ago. So I wanted to make photographs that portrayed that. But also like there's this other element, which is that the children to me look brave. They look courageous. But the thing is that like they aren't, they're supposed to be children. They're not supposed to be brave. <laughs> you know, these aren't little soldiers. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, projects like this are why... I'm interested, I think, a lot in photography is because, and, and a little bit of why I'm frustrated with work where it's maybe gone the past 10 or 15 years, is that there's a lot of power in images to connect us to other people's stories and to share that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we've just got a lot away from that. It's just become so incentivized to be more superficial and about looks and skin and mm. trends and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a whole generation of photographers that have, that they've learned that's what's is important and popular. Mm. Um, and I think there's a lot of artists that um, they're missing out on like a deeper, mm -hmm. meaningful engagement just with photography and with life and with others. And I think that's the beauty of, of it, you know, mm -hmm. um, that it can move you. Mm -hmm. That's I think that's why ultimately like, why all of us are drawn to this mysterious thing where there's just two-dimensional pictures from mm -hmm. world, the real world, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard to know what is the right thing to do when you're starting out. Yeah. And it does feel like, you know, social media does give you a daily dose of like, it makes it look like other people are doing it. I do something for 10 years and I post it and it looks like I worked on it a week. It's like you're supposed to come up with a new a new project every week or something or every day. Yeah. And like and, and it that idea like inhibits the real like the way we really work which is actually, you know, slowly. You mm -hmm. know, like we actually have to work slowly. 
to make good work. I mean, there's certain things. I have projects that last two weeks. You know what I mean? Like I had things, you know, I was like kind of kicked out. And so <laughs> projects end because, you know, you get kicked out or you are the, you know, the plane takes off. Oh, and you leave, physically leave the country or something, you know, projects can end for all sorts of reasons, you know, but I think people, they miss that longevity. Like, I think they don't realize that it takes time or they're impatient, but it's not their fault. They feel impatient because they're getting a daily dose of feeling like people are doing new work constantly. Mm. But those are those are different people. That's not the same person doing all that. Yeah, it's it's the systems and structures that's the problem. It's not the mm. people necessarily. Kind of as we wrap up here, I think it. I think it'd be interesting if you could talk a little bit about maybe having a career just in photography in general. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people worried mm. and stressed. Some people just want to do photography because it's like a side thing and it's they don't they don't want to have any money attached to it. I think that's fantastic. And then there's other people that enjoy it and they do want to have a career. Mm-hmm. off of it and pay their bills you know mm-hmm. um there's just a lot of fear over like ai and just newspapers are not doing great and editorial assignments aren't as doing as great and things like that so i don't know if you have any advice mm-hmm. or encouragement or mm-hmm. wisdom or just reality check on if you were starting fresh <laughs> now yeah where would you go well, I had this one student that was that was talking to me about like she was stressing over money and she was stressing over like you know she was trying to do assignments and she was just mystified by like how she could possibly pay her rent and with photography and I said well you know like you don't have to make money with photography I just threw that out there and it was like a lightning strike for her like she was like oh my god she was like you're right. I don't like, and it was so liberating for this particular person. She was like, Oh my God, like, I don't have to make, I can make money some other way. Like, and in that way, like it can keep your work more pure, you know, Mm. but that's obviously not the right answer for people who really want to make money with photography. But like, I would just start the conversation out by saying, you know, it may be that like making money with your photography is not good for you. It might not be healthy. It might not even be uh, sustainable. I mean, if you want to do abstract photography, like you're probably not going to make any money with it. You know what I mean? Like it's, you know, it just so happens that I fell into a type of photography that's also marketable. My work, it works. Like if we were just to do an edit of just my strictly fine art photography, I would say even that photography is not really that commercially viable like it doesn't take me much effort in a way for me to make work that is like that people could put publish in a magazine or that some you know like I could make a headshot I can make people look good I could do you know I would say that I'm also like I want to be useful there's a part of my personality that I I love to be there for people like I if somebody's like look Greg I have this problem I have this photo editor comes to me like they just you know they're nervous they want to keep their job, right? You know, like, so they, they come from a, an editorial meeting where they, there's a story that's coming down the pike and they're like, well, we have this story. I was thinking about it for you. Like, you know, could you do this? And so they have a weight basically. And, and like, they're taking this weight and they're handing it to me. And then I take this weight off of them. I listen to the assignment. I'm like, Hmm, you know what? I can do that. I can picture it in my head. And, and also I, I'm, I'm so grateful for that, that they thought of me, like, I'm just like full of gratitude. And then I take this weight from them 
And then I'm like, and I, and they don't hear from me. Like, I'm not like, ah, it's a fucking up. And like, you know, I don't know what to do. You know, like mm-hmm. I take it and I, they don't hear from me and I talk as much as I need to, but like, I, I take the weight and then I come back with like, I take ownership of it and I come back with pictures that they can use. And so like that, that whole system of that fits in my personality. It's in my DNA in a way. I've talked to a lot of people and that is not necessarily everybody. I've met some people that are like, I mean, they're born artists. You know what I mean? Like you ask them to do something, they're like, I can't do that. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) you're like, excuse me, can you like take the garbage out? And they're like, no, I'm sorry, I can't. Like, (laughs) they're not useful in that way. Like I've had assistants that were terrible assistants. They were terrible at doing shit for me. And which is fine, I respect that. But I was like, you are an artist. Like, you're not going to be a good commercial photographer because you're not really suited to, like, take on, like, people's things, you know? I would divide people kind of into two groups. Like, there's Mm -hmm. people that can do things for other people, and there's people that cannot. So I would just say for people to to know thyself, you know, like, to kind of really, like, do some soul searching and be willing to let go of the idea of being a commercial photographer. You know, if it's really not in you to do things for other people, like, which is to say you know, that you're able to photograph like this way or that way, or, you know, to change your lighting or to, to use lighting to begin with, or to, you know, whatever they might need. But I also know embedded in that is this sort of a tightrope walk of like photographing, like make pictures that look like you made them, right? To have like this brand, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like to have to make work that looks like you made them, but you shot them for somebody else. And uh, that's always hard. <laughs> I was once at a, you know, I mean, it's not like I'm friends with P.L. DeCorsia, but like one day I was like, I was, I was printing next to him at a, at a lab, you know, it was a lab where you print your own work and he was there and we were, and I just said, you know, we started talking about commercial work and, and he said, yeah, you know, like, and he's known for his, like, you know, his commercial work is like held, you know, is like hung up in museums, but he was like, you know, the commercial work is never as good as your personal work. That's it. I would agree with that. The work you make on your own is probably going to be better than the work that you do for other people. It's a compromise. It's a collaboration. It's like, you know, but how good are you at collaboration? So the better you are at collaboration, the better the work will be that you do for other people. Not all of us are good at that. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so we'll definitely need to wrap up. So just, you have a podcast to, you're talking about some of your oh, pictures. Oh yeah, I should be taken. selling something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's too bad I'm yeah. not filling up a workshop right now. <laughs> yeah. So I guess just tell us a little bit about like where people obviously build your website and their podcasts and where people can kind of find your stuff. Yeah. So uh, my website is gregmiller.com and I started a podcast myself. It's called Photophonica. Maybe I should spell that. It's P-H-O-T-O-P-H-O-N-I-C-A.com. And the idea is that I I take one picture, a single photograph, and I build out an audio story uh, around that photograph. And I love this idea. Like, I just love, you know, audio storytelling. It's a a lot like photography. It's weird how similar it is to me. In fact, combining a picture and audio feels strange. You know, like it feels kind of like maybe it should be video or something. Like it's, I'm sort of interested in that problem or that you know, just fitting those two things together. I thought about it, uh, you know, why do I want to do this? And, you know, when I was younger, like I was sort of militant about like not sharing anything about the picture. Like I didn't want to put a caption on it even. 
But I think as I've gotten older, like I'm really interested in what somebody was thinking or, you know, what what was going on? What if you just heard like somebody's life story like that? Like if you just look at the person in the picture, like, you know, what is what is their story or Mm-hmm. And um, and that and that audio, like just this idea of audio storytelling, just like putting something together with sounds, just collective sounds. I have one that's more abstract and I have some that are like an interview like this where I just cut myself out. And then I have others that are, you know, there's really like one sound after another, you know, and then I have others that are like an essay, just me writing an essay. And then I talk into the mic. And all of this comes from like this idea that I, I felt like I felt isolated. This kind of goes before the pandemic, but I felt like I noticed that people that would, that would buy my work or they would they would sign up for a workshop were people that knew me. And I thought, well, what if I was like, how can I know more people? You know, how can I connect with more people? And and so um, so that was that was the idea behind the uh the podcast well thank you so much for taking the time yeah thank you like i really appreciate it and good luck with your app you know i'll test it for you if you want sure yeah i would love for you too yeah i don't know if uh yeah once we get it once i get it to a stage where i'm comfortable having other people look at it spin it up (laughs) yeah it's hard i mean i i can't imagine but like hopefully you know like google buys it or some shit i don't know whatever like i don't know know what your long-term goal is but (laughs) like you know or like instagram or i don't know you don't want instagram to buy it i guess but um but uh but no like it could be great you know like there is a hole like there is a there is a need for something other than instagram i feel the same way so i'm hoping enough people do too so that's the hope yeah Yeah, see where it goes one one week at a time (laughs) yeah so cool right on Hey everyone, Michael here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Photo Podcast with Greg Miller. If you like this podcast and you uh, want to support us, you can do that financially. Uh, You can become a paid subscriber to our uh, Substack. So it's photo, F-O-T-O-A-P-P dot substack dot com. And if you become a paid subscriber there, uh, we use part of those proceeds to help pay for production. Uh, of this podcast. Also, you can just freely help support us by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. We are at like four or five star reviews, and so we would love to get more, um, like to get up to a hundred five star reviews. And last, you can support us by just telling your friends. So if you have photographer friends, creatives, anybody um, that you think would enjoy this, please feel free to share the word. This is episode number 11, so this is a fresh new podcast out there and anything you can do just to tell others was much appreciated. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.